Christianity is not a religion devoted to man finding God. It's an account of God's pursuit of you. To say that another way, Christianity isn't about you finding God. It's about God who is on your trail. He is coming after you. God has pursued man ever since man fell away in the Garden of Eden. God went out for Adam and Eve immediately after the fall, and he pursued them in the garden. And he continues to go out after every single lost soul. He's not willing that any should perish without him. But he's given each person, each one of us, the ability to freely choose for themselves. There is a profound account of God's pursuit of man by a 19th century English writer. His name was Francis Thompson. He was born in 1859 into a Catholic family. And he left home, he moved to London, and he became a writer. While he was in London, he became addicted to drugs and literally found himself living out on the streets, found himself literally almost like the prodigal son, found himself in the gutters of London. And Thompson wrote a famous poem. It's called The Hound of Heaven. And in it, he eloquently describes God's pursuit of every single person. He says this in the poem, I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. And in the midst, midst of tears, I hid from him. And then he talks about God's pursuit of him. He says, from those strong feet that followed, followed after but with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy, they beat and a voice beat more instant than the feet. You see, God was going after Francis Thompson and God went after Adam and Eve and God has gone out after you with that same unperturbed pace and deliberate speed. Another example of God's pursuit of man is found in the story of Moses. You're probably, most of you, familiar with most of the bullet points of the story, the history of Moses' life. He was born to a Jewish woman named Jochebed in Egypt during the time of Pharaoh's decree to have the male children born to the Hebrews thrown into the river. That was the decree. And Moses' mother, when Moses was born, he looked she looked at Moses and she said, well, I'm not throwing him in the river. <laughs> and she, she made a basket out of the bulrushes and she put Moses in the basket and put the basket out into the river. And Pharaoh's daughter discovers the basket and claims Moses as hers. Now Moses' sister Miriam had, was watching all this from a near distance. And after Pharaoh's daughter finds Moses, she comes up to uh, Pharaoh's daughter and says, hey, do you want me to go get a nurse for the baby? And she says, yes, go get a nurse. And so Miriam runs back and gets her mother, Moses' mom, and brings her back. And Miriam becomes Moses' nurse. And Pharaoh's daughter pays Miriam, or Moses' mother, Jochebed, to literally nurse her own child. 
Amen? And so this is the mother's aside little bonus point. If you dedicate, if you give your kids to the Lord, God is going to provide everything that you need to bring them up in the ways of the Lord. Amen? Amen. So Moses grew up in the palace of Egypt, and he had the finest education in all the world at that time. And it was just an incredible upbringing from that standpoint. Later, he went to visit his people and saw one of the Egyptian soldiers beating one of the Hebrew men. And Moses got angry about this, and he killed the Egyptian soldier and hid him in the sand. The next day, Moses returned again to see the Hebrews, and there he found two Hebrew men fighting one another. And so he went over to break up the fight, and they they looked at him and, and said, well, he said to them, why are you striking each other? Why are you striking your companion, your friend? And the man replied, who made you a prince or judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And suddenly, right then, Moses realized that it wasn't in secret that he had done this and that word was going to get out. In fact, the Pharaoh made an attempt on his life, and so Moses flees out of Egypt into the desert, and so he finds himself in the desert. All the way out to a place called Midian, he finds himself at the well of Midian, uh, where along come these, se these seven sisters. <laughs> these seven sisters come to the well at Midian, and they come to water the flocks, and there was a disturbance there, and so Moses kind of stepped into that situation, kind of had to uh, beat back these guys and, and, and allow the, se the seven sisters to water their flocks. They got back to dad's house so quick with the watered flocks that it was like, wait, how'd, how'd, how'd this happen? How'd you get back here so quick? Well, there was this guy, this Egyptian, and he helped us out and did all this and that and whatever. And he's like, well, you didn't invite him over for dinner? Get back there real quick and invite this guy for dinner. Long story short, Moses comes back for dinner and ends up marrying one of the seven sisters. And goes on to work for his father-in-law. He goes on to become a shepherd, keeping the flocks of Jethro, his father-in-law. Now, fast forward a few years, and Moses finds himself way, way, way out in the desert. And we come to one of the most pivotal chapters in the Bible, which is Exodus chapter 3. We see that Moses is watching the flocks of Jethro on, the, on what the text says, the backside of the desert. Now in the text, it, it literally says he was on the backside of the desert. It's as if to say, you, you don't get any more remote than this. You don't get any further away from what's happening uh, with this. And this is kind of the state of Moses' life at this point. The, the word there for backside, it literally means behind, in the background, the extremity. Moses was far away from everything and everyone, and he was certainly far, far away from the palace in Egypt. But he turns aside when he sees an interesting phenomenon. He sees a bush that is on fire, but it is not being consumed. So he goes closer to investigate. And a voice speaks to him from the fire. Moses, Moses, God calls to him. Moses answers and God tells him to remove his sandals because 
He's on holy ground. And he tells Moses that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God goes on to have a conversation with Moses, and he calls Moses to be a leader, to be really that one that would be a deliverer, that would go back to Egypt, go back to Pharaoh, and, and bring the people of Israel, the Hebrew people, out of Egyptian bondage. But Moses, before he can go back and do this, he's got to have this question answered. He says, God, if I go back to the leaders of Israel in Egypt, and I go back and say, God spoke to me, and, and you know, uh, we're going to lead you out of here. We're going to bring this people out of Egypt and we're going to take them out in the desert to worship God. I want to know, I'm going to need to know what your name is. I'm going to need you, I'm going to need to know what your name is. Moses asked the question this way. I'll have it up on the screen. It's Exodus chapter three, verse 13. It says, indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? This is the question. And God answers the question. God gave him his name. In Exodus 3.14, I'll also have that on the screen. This is what God says to him. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. I am who I am. God's name, literally, this is, I, I love it. His name is, I am, I exist. <laughs> so it, it is so interesting that people that say that God doesn't exist, his name literally is, I am, I exist. So, and he goes on to tell him, my name is I am, and this is my name forever. You'll see it, when you see it in the Bible, you'll see it as what scholars call the tetragrammaton. It's the four consonants, Y-H-W-H. When you see it in your English Bible, it, you'll see it, it's the word Lord, but every, ca every, uh, uh, or every letter of that word is capitalized. So capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. When you say them, see them all four capitalized, that is where they've inserted that word for the tetragrammatron, the four consonants, Y-H-W-H. So, so God tells Moses, my name is I am, I am. Now, I, I want to I fast forward here. We're going to fast forward from the mid-1400s B.C., and we're going to fast forward in time about 1,500 years to 31 A.D. We're going forward 1,500 years to 31 A.D., and we find ourselves in our text, which is John chapter 8. Now, in this text that we're going to look at tonight, Jesus is making his case as to who he is. He makes a claim, and then he defends the claim in this chapter. I, it's, one of the, it's, it's one of the unknown but greatest chapters in the New Testament, I think. And so Jesus makes a claim about himself. So we're going to read, beginning in John chapter 8, Let's pick it up in verse 12. It says this. Then Jesus spoke to them again saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Then the Pharisees therefore said to him, you bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. 
And Jesus answered and said to them, even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I came, come from and where I am going. You judge according to, your, to the flesh. I judge no one. And yet if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am the one who bears witness of myself, and my Father who sent me bears witness of me. Then they said to him, where is your father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. So Jesus makes a claim about himself. There was a time in my life, in my childhood, when I thought that I wanted to be a lawyer, an attorney. And there was a particular reason why I thought this, was because I thought I was pretty good at arguing. <laughs> Amen? Pretty good at arguing, pretty good at making like a good case about stuff, like convincing people of stuff. And my, my parents said, yeah, you make a pretty good persuasive argument about stuff. I worked to develop persuasive arguments with my family and friends concerning politics, sports, even theology. In sixth grade, I was on the debate team at school, and we were living in the suburbs of Chicago at the time, a place called Naperville, Illinois. It is now the second largest city in the state of Illinois. And on the debate team, I, I, in sixth grade, I won my first debate when I successfully argued that then-Mayor of Chicago, Jane Byrne, was forwarding a housing policy that was very bad for the city. Yeah, this is the, this is the case I won in sixth grade. Yep. Oh, my goodness. When it comes to the law and making a, su a successful case, burden of proof must be understood. Defined, burden of proof is the obligation to prove allegations presented in a legal action. Latin for burden of proof is the phrase onus probandi. You may be familiar with the phrase, well, the onus is on him or the onus is on the prosecution. That means that they have to make the case. The burden of proof is different in different types of cases and trials. Civil cases require a preponderance of evidence. This is the lowest level of proof. The highest burden of proof is for a criminal trial, and that is beyond a reasonable doubt, right? There was a burden of proof that is found in the Bible, a burden of proving something to be true in the Mosaic Law, and it was this. To prove something true, it required two or three witnesses to prove either innocence or guilt, and especially when it was uh, concerned a capital crime. So you have the law of witnesses. The law of witnesses, actually, you will find it in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 19, verse 15, and I'll have it on the screen for you. I want to read this because this is important to our, our talk tonight. 
It says this, one witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. So this is the law of the witnesses, and this governs the burden of proof in Mosaic law in the people of Israel. So in John chapter 8, we read the first, we read some scripture there. In John chapter 8, John chapter 8 is literally a legal case. It is a legal, it is Jesus making his legal case for his identity. Jesus makes an opening sent, a statement, and then he brings witnesses to prove the case, the case for his identity. His opening statement, we already read it in verse 12 there. He said, I am the light of the world. This is one of seven statements in the New Testament that are called the I am statements of Christ. Seven times Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life, just to give you a couple. Okay, so this is one of them. I am the light of the world. Now, what is this claim? What is this? What is Jesus saying in his opening statement here? He's saying, I am the light of the world. Now, in the, in the Hebrew community, especially amongst the Pharisees and the Sadducees, which were the religious leaders, when you would, if you were to make a, a, a claim like this, this wasn't like, you know, people out there like, you know, I am the light of the world. Okay, good for you, buddy. I got a Slurpee over here or whatever. You know, no, 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 no. When, when he said, I am the light of the world, this was a significant statement over here in, 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 with the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the religious leaders there. The claim to be the light of the world was a claim to deity. And that also that he was the Messiah. Got a couple of verses to, to kind of back this up here. Psalm 27.1, one that you'll be familiar with, says this, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Who's that? The Lord. God is my light. Mm -hmm. Isaiah 60, verse 19, the sun shall no longer be your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give light to you, but the Lord will be to you an everlasting light and your God, your glory. And so there's this connection, and I could, we could read others, but there's this idea that God was the light. God is light. God was the light of the people of Israel. He's the light of the world in that sense. And there's a connection really with the light and the glory of God. Did you see that in that verse? The, the light and the glory of God. And then more famously, you'll recognize this one in Isaiah chapter 60, verse, verse 1. I'll have it on the screen for you. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. Again, the light is connected with the glory of God. The light shining, the glory of God. And so a claim to be the light of the world was a claim to deity, and it was also a claim to being the Messiah, the chosen one of Israel, okay? So Jesus made his opening statement. And when did he do this? Let's back up. In chapter 7 of John, just to give you a context, in John chapter 7, they are celebrating one of the feasts uh, that is given in the book of Leviticus. And it's the last feast of seven that were given 
of, of Yahweh's feast, of God's feast for Israel to celebrate. It was called the Feast of Tabernacles. And one of the things they would do in the Feast of Tabernacles, there was a special ceremony. It was a, a feast that would last, it was about a week. And one of the ceremonies they would have is in the outer courtyard of the temple area, they had these four large golden uh, 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 candlesticks, candelabras, and they would light these. And it was uh, kind of a, it was, it was a, a picture, it was a symbol of of God, these lit candlesticks of God's presence dwelling with them. So it was the light of the world with them. So when you flip the page from John chapter 7 to John chapter 8, the first part of John chapter 8 is the passage where he, he's, uh, the, the, the leaders bring the woman caught in adultery and then he handles that situation. Then on the, on the tail end of that is when he stands up and he makes this statement. He makes this opening statement. He says, I am the light of the world. So this was him saying, I, I see you looking around. We're celebrating Feast of Tabernacles. We're celebrating that God is dwelling with you. Here's the, the, the candlesticks. Here's these candlesticks that are lit that are picturing the light of the world, God's presence with us, dwelling with us. And I'm telling you, I am the light of the world. In fact, he says it so dramatically because, because he says it this way. He says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So pretty powerful statement from that standpoint. So Jesus made his opening statement and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders, rejected the statement. Look at verse 13 in your text. John 8, 13. I'll actually have it on the screen for you. The Pharisees therefore said to him, you bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. They basically were saying, well, this is good and great, but this is just you saying this. You're bearing witness of yourself. How is it that you expect us to even believe us? Believe this? Your witness is not true. You're, you're just saying this about yourself. So they reject the statement. Now, Jesus knows the law of witnesses. And he knows that they're basically saying you only have one witness. Right? You bear witness of yourself. Your statement's not true. So Jesus says, even if I am the only witness, it's true. Because I know who I am. I know where I'm going. You don't know. You don't know where I'm going. You don't, I'm one with the Father. I'm going to my Father. You just don't know. But even if it's just me testifying of myself, it's still true. But then he reminds them of the law of witnesses from Deuteronomy. Look at verse 17. Jesus calls his witnesses. Look at, I'm sorry, verse 18. I am one who bears witness of myself and the father who sent me bears witness of me. Okay. So we've had the opening statement. We've had the Pharisees and the Sadducees say, no, we reject it. You know, cross-examination type of a thing. You bear witness of yourself. It's not true. Jesus says, okay, law of witnesses. This is what the law says, law of witnesses. So let me speak. I am the one who bears witness of myself and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. So we have witness one, myself. We have witness two, my Father. So he's making the statement, and he's saying, my Father is bearing witness of who I am. Now, now wait. 
Where is the Father bearing witness of Jesus and who he is? The Father proclaimed Jesus' identity at his baptism. You'll find it, you'll find the text in Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. It says this, you'll see it on the screen. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So the father bore witness of Jesus, of of his identity. Jesus was bearing witness of himself. And so according to the law of witnesses, and Jesus is bringing this case to the religious leaders, Jesus has brought two witnesses to the stand in support of his claim that he indeed is the Son of God. It then goes back and forth with the, with the religious leaders. Look at verse 19. So they, so they called into question his statement. They like, look, look, we reject your statement. It's not true. You bear witness of yourself. Whoa, wait, wait. The law of witnesses. He calls, I'm a witness. My father's a witness. This, and then they come back. Look at John 8, 19. You'll see it on the screen. They, they said to him, where is your father? Jesus said, you know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. So he basically makes a very strong statement back to them. He basically says to them, if you actually knew the father, you would accept me. And if you if you had known me, you would have known my father also. So it kind of literally goes both ways there. So what what does Jesus do? In his rebuttal to that, Jesus brings one more witness to the stand. Okay, so remember the law of witnesses, the the witness of two or three. So if Jesus is going to make a case for something, he's not going to bring Two, he's going to go all the way for three, right? (laughs) Amen? Amen? So, I mean, other people may bring two witnesses. Jesus is going to be on the outer extremity of, you know, the the full completion of that law, right? So two or three establish the truth of a thing. Jesus is going to bring three witnesses. So he brings the third witness. Jesus offers his third convincing witness to the stand, stating this in John 8, 28. When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. Let me read that again. This is Jesus, his third witness. When you lift up the Son of Man, you will know that I am. Jesus was very strategic in his wording, in his words. Now, what is Jesus referring to here? The lifting up of Jesus refers to his crucifixion, where Jesus was lifted up on a cross, on the tree, to die for the sins of the world. It was there that he became a curse for us so that we might live. Jesus' choice of words is interesting. He says, when you lift up the Son of Man. Jesus said it this way, referring to his upcoming death. And it was the same statement. He said it very, the same, the same way that he had said it to a Pharisee individually at a nighttime meeting that is recorded for us in John chapter 3. Jesus explains to Nicodemus 
that just as Moses lifted up a serpent in the, in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And so Jesus here connects, he, he literally is connecting the dots back to a very obscure thing that happened in the desert after Moses had gone back with the name I am and through the 10 plagues and all the rest of it, literally led the people of Israel out of Egyptian bondage. They ended up getting out into the desert and they just started complaining about everything. In fact, you know, you read Exodus and Numbers, you read these books and there's a lot of complaining going on. And one particular time, when there was a lot of complaining going on, there's a lot of complaining. They're complaining against Moses and they're complaining against God too. It's, it's not just Moses. I mean, yeah, they were saying, Moses, why'd you bring us out here? You brought us out here. We're going to die. You know, and then, okay, here's some water. Okay, here's some manna. God brings manna. God brings even meat for them, quail and all the rest of it until it was like just <coughs> rotting in their teeth, right? So they're complaining. They're complaining against Moses. They're complaining against God. And God had kind of had enough of it, <laughs> you know? And so he, he literally brought a curse upon them. And, he, and it was a curse of these fiery serpents that were coming into the midst of the Hebrew people. And they were being bitten by these fiery serpents. And some of them, some of the people were dying. It was, a, it was, a, it was an epidemic. It was an emergency, it was an emergency situation because people in the camp, in the encampments, were dying from being bitten by these fiery serpents. So some of the people came to Moses and they said, Moses, you've got to do something about this situation. You've got to go to God. You've got to handle this situation. You've got to tell that we've got to figure this out. So Moses goes to the Lord and says, okay, God, you know, people are dying. They're being bitten by fiery serpents. What do you want me to do? He says, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a serpent and I want you to cover it in bronze and I want you to put it on a pole. And I want you to stand up in front of the people and I want you to lift that, this bronze serpent on a pole and I want you to lift it up. And whoever looks upon this bronze serpent will be healed from whatever's happening with these fiery serpents. So that's what happened. He literally made this bronze serpent and held it up for the people to see. So the use of bronze in the Bible symbolizes judgment. Here the serpent pictured the sin of the Hebrews and the serpent hanging on the pole was their curse. So the, so the serpent was taking the judgment, taking the curse on this pole and it was raised up for them to see. And whoever looked upon it was healed. So this is very interesting. This is very interesting stuff. The law stated that he who hangs on a tree is accursed. Whomever looked at the lifted up serpent was healed. Today we see a modified version of the lifted serpent on a pole as the catechists in medical offices, in hospitals, 
on emergency vehicles, ambulances. It looks like this, okay? You say, you know, you got an ambulance going down the street, and it's like, okay, great, the ambulance is coming. Doo, 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 get out of the way. Wait a second. There's a, pole, there's a logo on it that's a pole with a serpent on it because this became a symbol of emergency and, and, healing, and, 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 and care and healing being, being, being brought, an emergency. And so this was an emergency. So, so it symbolizes healing. So healing care is on the way, so to speak. So Jesus told them, he says, here's my third witness. Back to John 8, 28. Okay, so that's the background. Back to John 8, 28. When you lift up the son of man, you will know that I am. So what is Jesus saying? He's connecting the dots back to the bronze serpent on a pole when, they, when Moses had to raise that up in an emergency situation that whoever looked upon that would be healed. Here he's saying that the son of man, that I'm going to be lifted up, and when I'm lifted up, you're going to know. You're going to know that what? That I am. That I am. Jesus eventually tells them, regarding all, all of this, that they could know the truth and the truth would set them free. Okay, so this is John 8, 28. Just a couple verses later from this is the place where Jesus is saying, he's talking about them being in, judge, uh, in bondage, and, and, they, and you, you can know the truth, and, and the truth will set you free. Okay, so this is the context of that statement. And you, you've heard this statement. In fact, I hear this, I hear, the truth will set you free. I, I heard it just recently, someone said it. I was watching some program or something, and they were like, yeah, the truth is set free. It was totally disconnected from Jesus actually having said that, from Jesus being the one that said that. But what's the context of that statement? The context of it is in actually knowing who he is and actually understanding and actually seeing the first witness, the second witness. Here's the third witness. You're in bondage. You're in a bad situation. And if you would look upon, when you look upon the son of man lifted up, you, you can be free too. You can come out of this bondage. You can have the, 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 the emergency that you're in right now being dealt with. You can know the truth and the truth will set you free. Rather than them responding, going, great, we can know the truth and we can be free. We can be set free from bondage. They freaked out at this statement. The, the Pharisees freaked out. They basically responded by saying, we don't need to be set free. Who are you to tell us that we need to be set free? Who are you to tell us that we're in any type of bondage? We're not in bondage. We've never been in bondage. It's like, wait, 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 wait. Door number one, screen number one over here. You were never in bondage? Really? Okay. You know, remember, you know, the whole Egypt and the whole thing and Moses? Okay. When you're kind of going down that road, you will reject truth. You will come up, you will disregard obvious things. Things that they knew. They knew that they had been in Egyptian bondage. They knew that they were slaves in Egypt, their forefathers. But when you're rejecting truth, when people are put in that situation where they're rejecting truth, they will convince themselves of all kinds of ridiculousness, 
all kinds of craziness stuff that is like easily like, really? Don't you, you know, do I have to come up here and remind you of your own history? So they're freaked out. They basically said, we don't need to be set free. We are free. We're Abraham's kids. We aren't born of fornication like you are, Jesus. This is what they said to him. Okay, so this, this gets like heavy duty. You want to talk about a, a, a courtroom drama? You know? None of these shows have anything on this, okay? Okay? Jesus calling witnesses, rebuttals happening. Jesus saying, look, you're going to lift up the Son of Man and then you're going to know that I am. And then you can be free. You can be set free. We're not, we don't need to be set free. Furthermore, we weren't born of fornication. We weren't born because of an illicit relationship. They're referring to the belief that some had that Jesus was the product of of uh, uh, fornication in the, in the, in the, in the, that situation with Mary and Joseph. So they accuse him of being the product of sexually promiscuous behavior. So Jesus comes with his closing argument. It's like, okay, let's bring, <laughs> right? let's bring this thing to a close. It's getting, it's getting heavy and heated in here. <laughs> he tells them that they don't believe his words and if they were of Abraham, they would believe his words. If you were from Abraham, if you were Abraham's kids, if you were Abraham's children, you would believe my words. He, he literally calls them sons of Satan. Okay. Jesus did this, right? <laughs> Jesus called these guys sons of snakes. Sons of Satan, okay? If you're going to try this, <laughs> please be very sure that you're 100% accurate, all right? Jesus was very convinced he knew what the situation was, okay? He called these guys sons of snakes. He called them, in other, other, other texts, he, he called them a brood of vipers, right? Which is a nice way of saying you're son of a snake, all right? Jesus. I like Jesus. Jesus was cool. Right? He says, if you believe my words, you won't see death. You guys are sons of the snake. You're sons of Satan. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to kill me. Satan was a murderer from the beginning and a liar. And you are just like your father, the devil. You're just like your father, Satan. If you believe my words, you won't see death. This is what he tells them. Now, at this point, they go absolutely bonkers. They said, okay, now we've got a demon-possessed guy on our hands. This is, okay, so they went from foreign, you're, 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 a, you're a bastard, okay, excuse my French, okay. Okay, the Bible, okay, Jesus being called a bastard, okay, now you've, you got a demon. You're a bastard and demon possessed. 
Jesus went, I mean, hey, <laughs> Jesus can take it. Jesus can handle it. He took all this. When it talks about he took all this reviling and everything, this is part of it that we have to realize and understand. He took all this on, on, on our behalf. Amen? When, they, when he said, you won't see death if you believe my words, they're like, you got a demon. Are you greater than our father Abraham? Abraham's dead. The Bible says that he believed God and it was accredited to him for righteousness. He believed the word of God, right? We, we read this on Wednesday night. Amen? If you were here. We read this verse where the writer of Romans, Paul, says this was written in Genesis 15 for you, people. It was written. What was written? That, that Abraham believed God and it was accredited to him as righteousness. This was written for you because that's exactly how you're saved. Abraham's dead is their point. Abraham believed God. Abraham believed the word of God. He's dead. And the prophets, all the guys who believed the word of God are dead. Are you better than Abraham? Are you greater than Abraham? This is what Jesus says. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced to see my day and, saw, and he saw it and was glad. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> the Jews said to him, you're not even 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? And this, this to me, is one of, the, one of the surefire statements of Jesus, where this is his reply to them. John 8, 58, I'll have it on the screen for you. Jesus said to them, most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. Let me stop right here. If anybody, if you ever see a video, if you're ever on YouTube, if you ever see anybody, if you ever see an atheist of this or that, they say Jesus never claimed to be God. They literally do not know what they're talking about. You have to simply pick up the Bible. You have to simply pick up the New Testament. You pick up the Gospel of John, and you read it right here, and you read it in context of this chapter in John chapter 8. And if, and if you're reading and you're understanding and you're comprehending, you cannot miss the context of this chapter. You can, the only way that you can, can, can miss it is if you literally want to suppress it and, and deny it is the only way you can because you can't miss the point of this chapter. Jesus has made a lockdown case for his identity, for who he is. He says, before Abraham was, I am. Now, now just in case, just, let's just say you got all the way to verse 58. And you said, I, no, that, that wasn't him saying that he was God. That wasn't that. No. Verse 59. 
They took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so he passed by. Their response to Jesus' statement in verse 58 is they literally wanted to stone him for blasphemy. So this is it. This is the legal case. This is the legal case, the biblical case, for the identity of Jesus. John chapter 8, he makes the case. Opening statement on the light of the world. He brings the first two witnesses according to the law of witnesses in Deuteronomy. They say, look, we're still not convinced. You're a bastard, you've got a demon. One more witness, when you raise up the Son of Man, you will know that I am. And don't you know that they knew how he was saying that? Don't you know, know that, that they knew very well what he was saying? This is, the, this is the beginning of the case. Who is Jesus? He's God. He claimed to be one with the Father before Abraham was I am. 